Hi, I'm Tom Melville. Welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode we bring you people, places and perspectives from beyond the big cities. Before we begin, a warning. This episode includes some coarse language and may not be suitable for everyone. As summer approaches and the days are getting hotter and hotter, some of us can't help but feel a sense of dread. It's fire season. The smell of sun-scorched eucalypt reminds us of the suffocating smog of black summer, the lives, homes and confidence lost. Last summer's horror bushfires made headlines around the world, highlighting concerns about climate change and prompting an independent inquiry in New South Wales. At least 34 people died in the unprecedented bushfire season during the hottest year on record. Our largely volunteer-run fire services were overstretched. Thousands of homes were destroyed. Andrew Messenger is a reporter for the Northern Daily Leader based in Tamworth. He takes us to the small New England communities of Torrington and Waitalaba, wilderness escapes devastated by fire last year, before summer even began. We actually had drops of rain. It was like a a full-on pyroclastic event. I was fighting the fire and I was going, that's water, it's raining. And I went like, what? And then I went like, oh, shit. Like, I know what that means. It's like it's making its own weather. And I went like, yeah, forget it. You're not going to put this out. And and then I thought, um, shut up, Peggy. Louis Stoker (laughs) is describing a pyrocumulonimbus cloud. It's essentially a thunderstorm generated by a bushfire. NASA calls them the fire-breathing dragon of clouds. They don't tend to create much rain, but do create dry lightning and wind. Winds can reach 100 kilometres per hour. Lou was caught right in the middle of it. I met him that night, November 8, 2019, in an evacuation shelter in the New England town of Gleninus. He was barefoot, covered in soot, wearing the same clothes he'd been in when the Kangawalla blaze burned through his home. The first words he said to me, after I asked him what it was like to lose everything, were, anyone who tells you that there's no such thing as climate change has got rocks in their head. That night, he told me he would rebuild his home in the small village of Waitalabar. A year on, I caught up with Lou in his new home. He has two rooms, a bedroom and a living room, plus a roof made of corrugated iron. He's at the bottom of a small hill, and you have to hike to get there. And he's surrounded by animals, everything from dogs to birds and pigs. But there's a key difference between his new home and the one he lost. So we are, we are in fact, underground right now. You told me that you wanted to sort of build back underground, but I didn't realise you really, really, really meant it. <laughs> didn't you? Yeah, I thought, thought I was full of shit. <laughs> you really well, did it. <laughs> oh, well, I always had, had the intention of going underground because it's much cooler. Like once I get this proper roof on, I want to go fully underground so that there is no, like, because, like, who wants to be living in fear of fire, like, constantly? And plus, when it gets hot here, it gets good and bloody hot. Like, I've seen it 47 degrees. Yeah, right. Like, it's cooking. 2019 had been a bad year for the region. The New England was running out of water. Towns like Tenerfield, Gleninus and Armadale were on their last few weeks of drinking water. In Urala, which has an average rainfall of over 30 inches a year, they actually did run out of drinking water. Trees were dying or dead. Grass was brown in a region famous for green. Everything was dry. It was the hottest year in the history of the world. There had already been weeks of fires that year, in February, destroying homes and farms near Inverell and Tenterfield, forcing the entire village of Tabulum to flee. During the winter respite, communities and governments were warned again and again to be prepared. That turned out to be an impossible ask. The black summer began shockingly early, with the first fires sparked in July, still winter. 
In the first days of spring, yet another massive blaze tore through homes just a few hundred metres outside Tenerfield. Firefighters travelled from every state and territory to do their service. The army of firefighters battled over 640 fires over 140 days, the longest deployment in the history of the service. They didn't save everyone. Torrington is a town of about 100 in the New England region of New South Wales. The former mining settlement is now surrounded on all sides by conservation area. The small town is filled with your typical Australian dream homes among the gum trees, some of them a century old or older. A couple of different variants of people here, the ones that like nature and everything else, the ones that have hopes of running stock and making a living, mm-hmm. uh, the ones that are on running away from some you know city social situation or yeah. uh, economics because it's cheap where you can grow your own food and you know exist a bit cheaply get away from the the problems of um COVID-19 and the next lot and the next lot after that (laughs) Richard Cork's home which he built is just a few hundred meters out of town but it feels like the middle of the bush it's home to dozens of birds kangaroos wallabies he calls it his open aviary he's lived on the plot for about 40 years Oh, I've never actually put a number to the birds, but uh, dozens and dozens of birds. But as species, you know, you've got your thrush, uh, red-tailed finches, your barrel finches, your, all your other parrots, um, crimson and king parrots and rosellas and lorikeets, uh, then your butcher birds and your magpies and your... Yeah, it goes on, all birds of prey and everything. You know, sometimes you see more just sitting on your veranda... I've always seen birds as being a good teacher of how we live together and uh, their world is pretty mean and, you know, you think it's nice and safe and flying around, but it's not always that easy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, right. To me, it's a sanctuary for them um, because humanity has driven, you know, most of nature out out of their lives as well as out of their environments. Richard had warning that a backbone had broken its boundaries and was heading for his direction ahead of a strong westerly. It had been anticipated for three days. The house was deemed undefendable. Richard fought for his piece of paradise anyway. He spent days preparing his property, switched on his home sprinklers, then left for safety just ahead of the fire front. What did the fire look like when it was approaching? Uh, an inferno. A wall of a wall of doom, really. You know, it was just all colours from you know gold, yellow, black, red, purple. And in amongst that, you've got little black pieces flying around and amongst the smoke. And if you didn't have glasses and a good glasses and a breathing mask, you were... Getting your eyes. You just couldn't do anything, yeah. Yeah. Um, he lost a one-bedroom unit in another part of town. Even the brass in the piano actually started to melt. It's how hot it got, and that's a fair degrees for... But he managed to save his home. The trees are still all black, and I would say at least 45%, maybe more won't come back. Uh, nearly all of the pines, the casuarinas and the she-oaks and 50-year-old she-oaks, you know, put it too round and just never going to come back. Um, but the birds came back? The bird, yeah, the birds came back. Yeah, they don't have as much to eat this time as they did last time, I think. But And the bees might not have as many flowers this year as they yeah. have. But. Um... He wants food, of course. You like living in a place where a bird can just fly up and say hello? Um, unless he's inside, shitting all over the place, yes. <laughs> Stephen Elliott lives in what is probably Torrington's oldest home, 
Built by his great-grandfather about 130 years ago, the retired school teacher has one of the best views in town from his front veranda across the cleared green in the centre of Torrington. He grew up in the town. He retired here after a life as a science teacher in Sydney, among other jobs. He now spends his days taking count of the local flora and fauna. You cannot describe what a fire like that is like. Um, the closest thing I can think of to it would be the pictures of the attack on uh, that village in Vietnam in the war. Um, My Lai. My Lai, yes. But, at, you know, at times it looked like even the air was burning. You couldn't see anything much but smoke and flames. And how long did that sort of period of total intensity go? Half an hour, an hour? Oh, no, it was short. Yeah, right. You know, within, from when that started burning here beside the house till it went over the top of a hill was probably minutes. And the worst of it was over probably in 10 or 15 minutes. Torrington is surrounded on all four sides by nature. Eucalypts grow up almost to the eaves of some homes which are scattered along the single main road. What had been a natural retreat turned into a trap. Well, the leaves are full of volatile oils and um, when it gets really hot, those oils come out and it's not just the leaves but the air around them that burns because it's basically like getting an aerosol can and um, lighting it up. It's that same sort of fire. Except it's an aerosol can the size of a forest. Yeah, yeah. The fire came on from three sides. There was no way out. What's it like, that wall of flame coming towards you, sort of waiting for it to hit you? Um, well, I'm pretty phlegmatic. I was just, you know, waiting, yeah, watching. Right. I'll just, uh, you know, sorry my wife had put the camera away in the car somewhere and I couldn't actually <laughs> photograph any of it. <laughs> that is pretty phlegmatic. <laughs> Most residents took cover in the RFS shed in the middle of town, the building filled with smoke. Phones went down. People thought the world was ending. Stephen had a clear view of the whole thing. Nobody had any idea what was coming. Um, people keep saying it's just unprecedented. You know, this is a fire out of hell. And for it to happen in the spring rather than in the summer, I mean, there's something seriously weird about the bloody world. I mean, yeah. when we've had fires before, it's always been in the summertime. But 50 years ago, the bush to the northwest, which is where the fires always come from, was a mosaic of creeks that were running and of hung swamps that were moist all the time and rocky escarpments. So fires tended to move in spits and spurts and burn out here. And But everything was dry this time. There were no swamps. There were no creeks. And it just jumped straight over the rocky outcrops. They were no barrier at all. When the smoke cleared, his home was still standing, but his grandmother's house, the place where he grew up, was lost. Unfortunately, the structures that did burn down were mostly old shacks like this one that were uh, here from the early days. And they're nearly all gone now. There's only this one left, I think, and one on the other side of town. And it's not nearly as old as this, I don't think. About a dozen houses were consumed by the fire, but thankfully nobody was killed in Torrington. But on the other side of the Great Dividing Range, an hour and a half's drive away in Waitalabar, where Lou now huddles in his underground house, two people died on November 8, 2019. Waitalabar was founded in 1979 as a multiple occupancy, as a, like a hippie commune, sort of nudist place. Some people get around nude, but it's, it's, it wasn't really a nudist farm as such, but yep. it's just people were like 
live naturally and, want- and, and people get their gear. Well, I do. Bloody come midsummer, I, I bloody garden naked, you know, like it's because it's too bloody hot to do otherwise. Yeah. Driving into the alternative community of Waitalabar is a bit of a challenge at the best of times. The single road is a maze of switchbacks through woods heading down into the Man River Valley. It's bitumen, but definitely off the beaten track. There's only one bridge in and out. That's how they like it, an escape. That descent has always been among their best defences against fire. Bushfires go quick up hills but slow down them. But if a fire somehow came down the track fast, they could be cut off, trapped, without any hope of assistance. How did November 8 start for you? Uh, a normal day. Definitely a normal day. Did you have any idea what was going to happen? No. I was fully aware there was fires all around in previous bushfire summers that had not been a problem. November 8 started normally for most people in Waitalabar. The nearby Kangawalla blaze was caught within containment lines and was not considered a threat. It appeared at advice level on the Fires Near Me app. But tension built in the tight-knit community as they saw smoke in the distance and heard stories about the fire in Torrington. They could feel the temperature rising and the wind increasing. Eventually it became a tornado with westerly gusts up to 83 kilometres an hour and temperatures in the high 20s, well above average. It felt even hotter. From where I sit in my house, I could see the fires out near Torrington, um, the smoke in that general direction. Which is about 80 kilometres away. Phil Hine remembers the uncertainty on November 8. He's lived in the town for about 30 years and had a house on its west end on a small ridge line. What was going on? Nobody really knew. It was around about 2.30 that I rechecked the internet and went, ooh, okay. And, yeah, pretty much shut the laptop and went out and just got all my fire hose and stuff at the ready. I had full tanks of water, I had a fire hose, I had a fire pump if I needed it. I was prepared. Mm. By yeah. 10 minutes to 3, the school had been let out. It finishes at 3 o'clock normally. They let them out a little bit early that day, and they all went, whoa, something's going on. And um, by 3 o'clock, I had neighbours come over and say, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to evacuate if this gets any worse. By 10 past three, I had evacuated. Yeah, and your house was on fire. And my yeah. house was on fire. Danielle Monk was working at the Waitalabar School tuck shop on the day of the fire. I got the kids off the bus at 3.10, 3.15, got them off the bus straight into the car and then I went to my son's place, which is couple of kilometres from my house and yeah. went to another house to warn them and then it was on you yeah like I only just got out so what would have happened if it had happened an hour earlier I hate to think all the kids would have been trapped at the school it would have been terrible Danielle made it out of the fire zone just got up there and was just so grateful that I'd made it out and then I got into town, that's when Sophie, my daughter with the RFS, rang me to say goodbye to me and stuff. But she didn't think that she was going to make it. She's like, oh, it looks really bad, Mum. I don't think I'm going to make it. I just love you heaps. And um, When did you know she'd made it? A couple of days later. Yeah, right. The Kangawalla fire had massively jumped containment lines and taken off. One minute it was at the top of the hill, the next they came under ember attack, then the front hit them. It had crowned, it had jumped to the top of the trees and was leaping kilometres at a time. Much of the school was destroyed. 
the uncertainty was was that the worst bit or driving away knowing that I'd gotten out that was the worst bit why, why is that what what that I'd gotten out and left people behind you know for the people that didn't make it out and that weren't aware I just happened to walk outside it just happened to be the school time otherwise it would have been at my place without me even knowing it was there. I'd have been inside getting away from the heat. Like about half the community, Bruce Walker is a member of the local RFS brigade. In September, they'd already fought and beat an emergency-level bushfire. It is a matter of record that just two RFS trucks made it into Waitalaba from outside that day. The Redstone RFS drove over a burning bridge on the only road in or out of the village before the bridge blew up. With just a pair of local trucks, it was every man and woman for themselves. Bruce did his best to defend. He fought for and lost his brother's house, but was able to save his own thanks to a bit of luck and some light fingers. If I hadn't looted my brother's house after I tried to save it so I wasn't going to, and I saw a one-inch joiner in, I got a funny feeling I need one of them, and I grabbed this one-inch joiner out of his bucket. I looted a burning house. My brother's in school. <laughs> but... Turns out, then when my gardens burned, the tea piece there was like pissing out my tank, so I was losing my tank water, and my tank caught fire three times. If I had not had a one-inch fill mat fitting that I was able to hook my little Honda pump up to and spray it on that on that tank, that would have burned. We would have run out of water. The fire truck would have run out of water, and I would have lost my home and possibly a lot. So, you know, it's a crazy little world, isn't it? In the west end of the hilly scattered property that was hit first, sadly two people didn't make it out at all. George Knoll was killed on sight. Vivian Chaplin died in a Sydney hospital of her severe injuries. A dozen more people were injured, one of them going to the aid of one of the people who died. Bruce and Danielle say the community of White Talabar is founded on looking out for one another. I mean, but that was an extraordinary day. You know, like normally we can all we all go around and help each other, you know. We would help our neighbours and things. This was like one of those weird things where it hit everywhere at once. It's like every man for himself. The black summer bushfires lasted another three months. Australia's worst ever fire season lasted 240 days. And for these communities, the effects have lasted a lot longer. In the history of Australia, there has never been as many fires threatening life and property burning at the same time as that day, November 8, 2019. A record 17 emergency-level blazes burned at once a wall of flame stretching from the Queensland border through much of New South Wales. Many survivors believe the RFS was simply overwhelmed that day, something that the service virtually admitted in the New South Wales bushfire inquiry. The inquiry quotes advice from the New South Wales RFS that a major challenge was the large number and size of fires running simultaneously, and they cite November 8. The New South Wales government declared a state of emergency on November 11. The black summer bushfires went on to kill 34 people, demolish over 9,000 homes and other structures. They killed over a billion animals, caused over $100 billion of damage. They blanketed Australia's cities in a satanic pall of smoke for months, toxic gunk which is estimated to have choked to death another 445 people. Danielle returned to Waitalabar a couple of days after the disaster. I was just coming back and everything was dead everything like just didn't look like this place it looked like something on mars didn't recognize it at all 
It was like similar to what you'd expect an atom bomb to make or something. It was all black, I remember. Good luck, Rue. <laughs> <laughs> really <laughs> yeah, well. I remember the river being filled with black sort of sludge shit, just yeah. completely filled with it. Yeah, that was from the rain. Right. So the rain put in all that black sludge because that was all the runoff. And it just, yeah, went all sludgy and bubbly and disgusting, killing everything. Phil Hines spent months homeless. And some nights he'd sleep in his car, a $73,000 Tesla he'd bought just days before last year's bushfires. It was Australia's most expensive homelessness shelter. Because it's electric, he could run the engine and keep warm without fear of carbon monoxide poisoning. He's just recently moved back into a new house in the same plot. It cost him the last of his savings. The vast majority of the community was not fire insured. How much blood, sweat and tears did this cost you? The building alone was 150000 and there's still infrastructure to go in, such as electricity. I got $1,000 support from the government one month after the fires. Like everybody else? Yes. And no further support from the government at all. They did clean up your plot, though? Oh, well, I cleaned the plot up before they got here and made a pile of my stuff, and they cleaned that away for me. Yes, I'll appreciate that. Thank you, government. <laughs> <laughs> I take it that White Talibar isn't the community would have expected a little bit more than that, maybe? No, I don't think so. I think people that have lived here for some time get used to the fact that you're left in the lurch, you are left remote. He's actually better off than most. Many people are still homeless, living in tents or caravans or in Glen Innes. Some will never return. That's actually another problem. The west end of Waitalabo is pretty much wiped out. Most of Phil's neighbours are either gone or broke. That means there's nobody to share the cost of joint infrastructure, like a local water connection. In a multiple occupancy commune like Waitalaba, there aren't many council services and residents tend to have to pick up the tab, even for the basics. Well, there's only half a dozen to try and repair a water line that's, you know... Used uh, to have 22. Used to have 22 on it, though, yeah, and we don't have the money to repair the line. We will repair the line. It's just a matter of time. We're going to wait for some new residents to move in as Waitalaba grows into its new future. Are you seeing people interested in moving to...? No. No. <laughs> it's not an encouraging thing to move to somewhere where 50 houses get burnt down. Yeah. <laughs> At this stage, I have not met any new person that's wanted to come and live here. Mm. I have run into the odd person that goes, wow, what a beautiful place. They haven't said, wow, what a beautiful place. I'd like to come and live here. For the first time, the Glen Innes 7 Council will require the locals to get development approval. It's a major financial and even ideological challenge for a community founded as a hippie commune. One resident, Waitalabar RFS Captain Kim Jeremy, told me earlier this year he would expect the community to shrink by half, with many village residents unable to pay to meet new requirements. Lou Stoker has rebuilt, in a way. After fire and floods, he's decided the best place for him was underground. You've got a tin roof, you've got solid rock walls, and then this is your living room, and then you've got yeah. a bedroom over there. Got a tunnel to the bedroom. That's yeah. it, yeah. It's better than down. Like where I set up that caravan, it flash flooded six bloody times. <laughs> I had the, had the dogs loaded on the mattress, and I was standing knee deep in, in flood water holding the mattress so they didn't get swept away. It was like... After being burnt out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I looked at the heavens and said, God, you've got a tremendous sense of humour. <laughs> That's right. After years of drought and a horror bushfire, Waitalabar repeatedly flooded earlier this year. 
the Ford replacement for the village's only bridge was washed out half a dozen times, completely isolating the community from everywhere else again. But for Danielle, the consequences of last year's bushfires will last even longer. All that smoke that went into her lungs has severely affected her health. I have trouble walking any distance over 50 metres, 100 metres. I have difficulty just doing anything that even exerts myself. Sometimes I have trouble turning over on my pillow of a nighttime in bed. I get that breathless, just mm. my lungs are that bad. Just a simple act of turning over. Well, I know it's definitely shortened my life. Like it's totally changed what I can do and what I can't do. Every person responds to tragedy differently. Most agreed that living among the ruins of last year's bushfires had affected their mental health. To be reminded of that awful day first thing in the morning and last thing at night for months was a constant punishment. Plus, lives were on hold in both Waitalaba and Torrington. Everything was waiting until clean-up, first estimated to be done by June, then postponed. Torrington resident Thomas Evans plans to rebuild. So a year on... How are you going? You lost your house, obviously. What's happened since? <sighs> a lot of depressing moments, in all honesty. Um, because it took so long for things to start happening with clean-ups and all that sort of thing, it was hard to do stuff to actually feel like you were doing something and getting motivated again. And it's really only in the last few months since clean-ups are finished and a little bit of the um, problem area bush has been cleared a little bit. So it's only since then, really, that I've started moving forward and planning and got a house kit on site and a shed kit on site now. Thomas Evans will need to spend about $300,000 to rebuild. His fire insurance covers about half of that. And and, and really, it's been quite numb. The whole every everyone I think in the, around the place is still numb to a point and and still a bit angry and trying to get over things. You know, there's people still very um, very much in in that yesterday place, I suppose. Many residents told me the RFS should attack future fire starts with what are called remote area firefighting teams before they become an unstoppable inferno. The New South Wales Bushfire Inquiry listened. Its 45th recommendation says fire authorities ought to put more emphasis on those raft teams, highly trained experts, often deployed by helicopter in wilderness areas. It said their efforts should take priority even among fire suppression operations like backburning, where backed by a risk assessment. But residents have had less luck with another ask, buffer zones. Thomas, like other residents, told me, if the trees had been cleared in a protective zone around the town of Torrington, it may have been a very different story last November but residents are still asking. We still need that 50-metre zone. We've probably got close to it, but I would like to see it a lot more than that, you know, because everyone around here and these places that have been burnt out, we haven't been able to clear around our properties, and that is just wrong, totally wrong. You know, we, we should be able to safeguard our investments as such and our lives. It needs a lot more work around the place to, to get things back in check to the way they should be and into a situation where it was what we could call it safe. A lot of it is just things 
with, I, I guess, the Parks and Wildlife and Lands Departments have not been able to keep up because of budget cutbacks and things like that. They can't do their job and function properly, and, and really they do have the responsibility, I think. Torrington naturalist and nature photographer Stephen Elliott is now snapping photos of recovering fauna as part of the Bushfire Regeneration Project, an effort started by a student at the University of New South Wales. He's covering an area he knows pretty well. You know, I took on my first solo exhibition expedition sorry, into the bush when I was maybe five years old. I mean, when I grew up, we were still reading books about, you know, explorers and... Um, wilderness um, we didn't realize that you know the wilderness in our lifetime was going to go forever there would be no more wilderness and even the wilderness areas here I mean it's now got a road right through the middle of it um, which makes it very accessible but also means that there's a lot more pressure on it than there was in the past the black summer was the Torrington region's first massive fire season an area which never really used to burn he said but it won't be the last Stephen said the November blaze is just the harbinger of what is to come. Well, just the climate change is the biggest issue and if the trajectory of climate change continues as it is here, then eventually this area will become uninhabitable because the fire danger will just simply be too great. And the bush probably won't be there because it will burn to the ground. Even in my lifetime, the, the difference in the climate is remarkable. You know, over a short period like that, and then nothing's being done about it. So there's no reason to assume it's not going to continue to get worse. I see in the paper today they're talking about the southern cities in the not too far distant future having temperatures of 50 degrees. Torrington resident Stephen Elliott finishing that story from Andrew Messenger of the Northern Daily Leader. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please share it with friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Everyone has a story to tell. If you'd like to share yours, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Voice of Real Australia. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. Special thanks this week go to Fiona Ferguson. This is an ACM podcast. <laughs>